right, good morning. So I, I am continuing my experiment with a bigger board this week, and hopefully that will help. Also, we are putting more text on the screens as we go. We are in week two of Daniel, and I am wanting you guys to be able to see this timeline as we're going because it has, for me, it has... Uh, changed even the way that I am actually referencing the Bible right now, uh, as I am beginning to understand better and better uh, the, the, uh, the actual time frame of when some of these events were taking place. And you might think, well, you're the pastor. You're supposed to know these things. Some of these things, just until you start putting it on paper, it just doesn't connect. And as I was preparing for Daniel, uh, it just started becoming kind of overwhelming. And every day that I'm uh, prepping and preparing, I'm finding more, and it's actually rolling over into our coming series uh, that we'll be jumping into in a couple of weeks, uh, even some of the same uh, kind of add-on crossover information. So uh, bear with us as, as we are experimenting on the best way to do this. So it's good to have everybody here today, uh, whether you are online or in the space physically. Thank you for being a part of what's happening here. Uh, I just wonder if we could just take a moment and just go to the Lord and ask him to just be with us as we're receiving the word. Would that be okay? If you don't mind standing to your feet, if you're in here and just in a moment of reverence, Father, we love you. And I am so thankful for the community that you have allowed me to be a part of. I am thankful for the opportunity to present your word. I pray that as I do so today, God, that your word would uh, be, be represented in, in its entirety as truthfulness. I pray that it would impact our lives. I pray that it would bear fruit in our lives. Help us to receive what it is that you're showing us in your word, that it would transform our lives, that we would be the people who fit into the narrative rather than trying to uh, force the narrative into our own way of thinking and living. We love you and we thank you. Be with us today in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. So uh, our story is around this guy, Daniel, and next week I'm going to be talking about some of the prophecies that we find in the book of Daniel. Today I'm going to be focusing more on his life in Babylon, and uh, I've titled today's message, What Do We Have to Do? So, so we find ourselves in exile, we find ourselves in Babylon, we find ourselves separated, we find ourselves wondering, like, how in the world did we get here? But once we realize that we are in a place that maybe we don't want to be in, maybe we're not comfortable with, what is it that we do when we're there? And I think too often uh, what, what we do as Christians is we shut down. And there's this, this story, this narrative in the Old Testament of a group of men and women who were, their, their world was turned upside down, and we're given insight into how it is that they stayed the course, right? And even better than that, not only did they stay the course, but they walked out a lifestyle that the generations before them had not faithfully walked out. And so they were not dependent on grandma and grandpa's faith. They weren't dependent on the miracles of, 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 you know, of a previous generation. They decided that they believed in God and they themselves were going to walk it out. And so they experienced God and his miraculous hand. So 
In our story, Nebuchadnezzar is king. What does that mean? Well, at this point in history, Nebuchadnezzar isn't just like this king of an area. He is the ruler over much of what we would call the known world at this point in time. So Nebuchadnezzar, as the the head of Babylon, has extended his reach and rule and his power, his authority over all of the land. And Israel has been subjected to this. Now, the reason that Israel is subjected to this is because of over a century of turning their back on God. And and what do I mean? It was not as if these people said, we no longer believe in God. That, that is not what was happening for a hundred years. And this is really important. Like all, all week long, I've been thinking about, you know, what I shared with you guys last Sunday. And I want you to understand it was not about a, a hundred year cycle of them saying there is no God. That is not the case. It was a hundred years of conforming to outside pressures and allowing their faith to look more and more like the world around them. So they had allowed idolatry and the acceptance of other ideologies and belief systems to permeate their own faith instead of living the way that God had instructed them. And this is what the prophets had been consistently bringing forth in their rebuke, was you need to live the way that God has called you to live. You need to stop trying to live in a way that appeases these other influences in your life. But they did not do that. And and this is probably more than any other reason why I feel like this is so applicable to you and I today is that there is, just as there was then, continuous external influences that want to... Thank you, Caitlin. Everybody give it up for my daughter. Continuous uh, external influences that want to see the church conform. And what happens, and what happened during this time, is that, in essence, a new faith birthed. It was a different form of godliness, a a different form of the faith. And if we are not careful as Christians, we can get caught up in new versions of Christianity. And here's the thing, they aren't of God. I'm going to lay that out for you today, but you just need to understand that at this point in time, you might say, oh, God is king, but God was not king in their hearts. Nebuchadnezzar was king. So Nebuchadnezzar is king, and Daniel and his friends are in Babylon. They are separated from their home. And just so that you get a a really good understanding of what this means, this means that this group of probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20-year-old young men are now separated from mom, dad, brothers, sisters, friends, and they will never in their lifetime see them again. The, these, this group of young men, they, it, is, it is for them a completely new world. And so this means that any influence that has been had into their lives to this point, as far as a godly external influence that was free to do so, has come to an end. This is, this is all that they had, and now they are going to step into a completely pagan land. So Nebuchadnezzar is king. Daniel and his friends, they are separated. And in Daniel chapter 1, we covered some of this last week, but I want to touch on this real quick. Among these, verse 6, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. 
And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Now why does this matter? Because for these four young men and many, many like them, everything in their life had been taken from them. Minus their identity. There was nothing else that Nebuchadnezzar, as a servant of the enemy, could strip away from this group of young men outside of their identity. And so what does he do? He changes their name. Now, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot this week because, because when we talk about a name change, it happens throughout the Scripture. It's not just a bad thing. In fact, many times it's a good thing. It is a picture sometimes of conformity, and sometimes it is a picture of resistance. And the way that you determine whether it is conformity or resistance is really determining what is the picture of what's happening in your own heart. You see, for Nebuchadnezzar, it was a form of resistance. He wanted to make sure that Daniel and his friends conformed. But what we will find is that in their own hearts, right, it was, it was an attempt to force them to conform, and therefore they had to live in resistance. What are you conforming to and what are you resisting? When Paul changes his name, what is he saying? He says, I am now going to conform to the hand of God in my life, and I am going to resist the way of the world. At some point, there is an expectation for us to conform, and will we conform to the world or will we be conformed to the ways of God. And whichever one we choose, we immediately move into resistance with the other side. And so there is a name change. But let me tell you, Daniel would not conform, and he was not the only one. Young men and women all over the area that were separated and scattered across the land during this exile, they chose not to conform. Were they the majority? No. Nothing inside of Scripture or inside of archaeological evidence or historical nar narratives leads us to believe that the majority of people resisted conforming to the ways of Babylon. It was actually the minority of people. It was not the majority who said, I will not give my life over. And yet that was the call. The call was that they would not give their lives over. And so Daniel being ordered to live this way right out of the gate goes to the person in charge and he says, listen, I know that the king, he's changed my name and he wants me to eat this certain diet. Listen, here's what I'm going to ask of you. I'm going to ask that you actually withhold those, those benefits from me and let me deprive myself. Let me not indulge in those areas of excess. One of those being eating the meat that was sacrificed to idols, right? That was something that was added to them as a benefit. They would have gotten the choice cut of meat. Daniel said, I don't want it. Let me eat a different diet. And he said, and if at the end of, uh, of a period of time you determine that I'm not in better shape and that God is, my God is not moving, then I'll, I'll, I'll surrender to what you're saying, right? 
And so he did this, and look what happens when he comes to the king after having done this in verse 20. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Now, why is it comparing him to the magicians and the enchanters? It is comparing him to those people because Nebuchadnezzar saw Daniel and his friends as magicians. He saw them as influencers within the mystical. Why? Because he did not accept Yahweh as God. Most likely, he just saw him as another God among a myriad of gods. Verse 21, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So, 603, As we move into uh, uh, the next chapter, there's going to be a, uh, a dream that takes place. It's actually in 604. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to have this dream. Let's see if I can make this work. And it does not. It's what I was worried about. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he sends for his magicians, okay? And he tells them that what they need to do is they need to tell him what the dream was that he actually had. Now, typically, he would tell the dream, and they would interpret it. But he comes in and, and watch. He tells them that they have to be the ones to interpret it. And we get a glimpse into the type of man that Nebuchadnezzar is, right? Here in verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruin. So he comes and he says, look, you're supposed to be the magicians. You're supposed to be the ones that are tapping into all this stuff. Listen, if I tell you the dream, you can make up anything you want. You can say anything you want. This dream troubled me so severely that I need to make sure that you are really on point with this. So you're going to have to tell me the dream as well. And if you don't do it, then all of the wise men, all of the magicians, all of them are going to be torn limb from limb, and then your homes are going to be burned to the ground. And as you can imagine, Daniel is troubled. Why is he troubled? Because he is one of them. Now, there's something cool, I think, that happens here, and, and I'm going to connect some dots in just a moment, but watch here in chapter 2, verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Remember these three? This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we're familiar with them by that story, right? We'll get to it in a moment, the fiery furnace. But this is their Hebrew names, and Daniel does a really great job when he's talking about them as his peers, as his friends, at calling them by their names that were given to them by their families. And so he comes to them, verse 18, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Case in point, 
death can be a motivator to come to God, right? You're at the point of dying, and all of a sudden, it can make a lot of sense to get down on your knees and begin to pray. Now watch this. They, they pray, they come to the Lord, and the Lord reveals to them what the dream was. And Daniel isn't necessarily very excited about communicating the interpretation. But he does do this. In verse 31, this is what he says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, the image mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. And so this image was an image of a statue. And if you've been in, script, in the Scripture or Bible studies or Sunday school for any period of time, you might be familiar with this. Verse 32, the head of this image was of fine gold and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Verse 34, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The dream that he has is a dream of the future. It is a dream of events that are yet to come. And in Daniel chapter 7, which we'll get to next week, he has a dream of the same future, but inside of a different vision. So I'm not going to try to unpack all of this today. I'm going to work on that next week. But the basics are this, that it would represent the different kingdoms that would rule over the earth. The first, the gold, would be that of Babylon. The silver would be the Medo-Persians, and the significance of that is that it is the, the, the torso with two arms, and so it would be two empires ruling together. So this was the Medes and the Persians. The bronze would be the Greeks. The iron would be the Romans, and that's the legs, and that would represent the east and the west of the Roman Empire. And then there's the clay and the iron. This is some type of revived Roman Empire, and this, all of these have been fulfilled, right, in history except for this final kingdom. Now, the metals, as they go, they get stronger, but they get worth less and less in value. In verse, John chapter 14, verse 29, John writes this, and he says, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. This is Jesus speaking, and he's talking about prophecy. He says, I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but... I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So what Jesus says is, Jesus says that I give you prophecy, 
so that those who are believers have, have a, some direction to look forward, and then those who need to be strengthened in their faith as the prophecies come to pass, will, will, their faith will be strengthened, and that they themselves will know that the Lord is the one that is at work in their lives. And so it is significant, it is important for us to take time to look at prophecy inside of the Word. So, what we are waiting on today is a coalition of ten nations. If you want to know more about that, come back next week, and I'll be unpacking that. Back to Daniel chapter 2, verse 47. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God and of God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So instead of destroying all the wise men, because Daniel has heard from God, he is put in charge of all of them. Now, some scholars believe that it was this influence that Daniel was put in charge of the wise men is the reason why when Jesus was born and the wise men come from the east and that they were looking for the sign, the star, that they were looking for the Son of God, the reason that they were is because Daniel, in charge of them, had led many of them to Yahweh and that for generations they were waiting on future prophecies to be fulfilled. And so when they showed up, they showed up because of the influence of Daniel over 500 years earlier. Verse 49, Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. So what did he do? The thing that he did was he reached out to the king and brought his friends with him. Now, we see this at work in our lives, right? How many advantages have you had in life because of a relationship? How many opportunities have you been given because of a relationship? How many times have you gotten a job or a promotion, not solely based just on your own ability or your skill set, but because of somebody that you knew? Relationships matter. And having relationships with godly people matter. And Daniel goes because he's a good man, and he cares about his brothers here, and he reaches out to the king, and he says, can they come in? And they are given responsibility. Now, probably a little over a year later, in 603, we come into chapter 3. And we're going to experience the story of the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, at the beginning of the chapter, builds a 90-foot gold statue. And he sets this thing up probably somewhere outside of the city limits of Babylon, 90 feet tall, and he gives instruction in verse 4. The herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every other kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. 
And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So this statue, made out of gold, probably influenced by his dream, where he as the head was gold, he comes and he has this thing made, and then he sends out the word that I am to be bowed to. So every time you hear the worship service begin, if anyone does not bow immediately and worship the statue, the idol, then you will be thrown into a fiery furnace. Now, I'm preparing for this, and I'm thinking to myself, why a fiery furnace? Why is it that they would use a fiery furnace as a way of killing somebody? And what I discovered is that in this time period, one of the reasons that people would be put, not just burned at the stake, but actually into a furnace, is that it was a more efficient way of consuming the body. Today, when somebody passes away and they don't want to be buried in the cemetery, they choose to be cremated, their body is taken and put into a furnace. That incinerator gets so hot, it can turn the body to ash. Now, I don't know if their furnaces were, were, were capable of turning the body to nothing but ash and completely consuming it, but it was enough to eliminate the mess and the need for cleanup on the back end. And why would they have had these fiery furnaces? Probably because of the practice that they were engaged in of child sacrifice. And the number of children that were being murdered, sacrificed, was so high that it was easier to create a method that left little to dispose of versus daily having to clean up the blood and the bodies. And so it would have made sense for Nebuchadnezzar to say, we're going to make use of the fiery furnace, and anyone that does not worship this statue will pay the price. Now, during this time, uh, in 597, remember they're in Babylon, there is another king in Judah, and his name is Jehoiachin, and he is taken by Nebuchadnezzar and imprisoned. And when he does that, he instills a new king, and this king is Zedekiah. And Jeremiah, in the same year that Zedekiah becomes king, has some words to share with everyone that's in exile. And remember, you have people that are still living in Judah, but you have people now in Egypt and spread all the way across the Babylonian empire. And so he is writing these scrolls, he is sending the word out, and he has some thoughts on this new king, Zedekiah. And I wanna share this with you to help connect some, some dots for you. So when you're reading Jeremiah, this is happening at the same time that Daniel's uh, experiencing what he's experiencing. Jeremiah 29, verse 21, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel concerning Ahab, the son of Kaliah and Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, 
who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah and Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives, and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares the Lord. And so what does he say? He makes reference to the fire again. This is the method in which Nebuchadnezzar will take the lives of people, and he's speaking prophetically over Zedekiah and over the wickedness that will presume inside of this new kingship, this new reign. And he makes this, this connection to the fire, and so we see a secondary illustration of how Nebuchadnezzar would use the fire to take the lives of his enemies. But I, I want to talk for just a moment about this, this actual word that went to the exiles, and it was a, a warning about men of God who would claim to be the voice of God, but they were doing so for their own benefit. And God, through Jeremiah, sends the word out and says, you need to understand that this will not stand. It will not be okay. And I, I want to connect this because this, this, about two weeks ago, I saw a quote. And it said, not everything biblical is Christ-like. I didn't know who quoted it, so I quoted it to nonsense. And why would I say it's nonsense? Well, you could bend this statement to have some type of conversational truth, but, but the truth is this. If it is properly interpreted biblical, it will always be Christ-like. And if it is Christ-like, it will always be biblical. And if it is not, if it has the capacity to be separated, then woe be to the person who is interpreting the Bible separate from the lifestyle of Christ or who is putting a behavior of Christ separate from the Word of God. That's the very thing that Jeremiah is calling out right here. And he says, they are coming out and telling you that I am saying things or interpreting things in such a way that simply is not true. And so if somebody presents to you some form of faith where they say, well, that might be biblical, but it's not Christ-like, then you need to understand that, that, that it is not biblical or it is not Christ-like. Because John said that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and there is no separating Jesus from the Word of God. Amen? Jeremiah calls out the abuse and manipulation of the Word. If you have a problem with the way that some type of Scripture is being presented— do not shame the Word of God. Go and call out the manipulation of the text. Because if it doesn't line up with the lifestyle of Christ, then it is being interpreted incorrectly. Something is off. And we don't just give up as believers. And Jeremiah says God is upset about this. Now, 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they do not conform. The word goes out, you'll bow before the, before the statue or you will die. They refuse. And the, and the word says that Nebuchadnezzar is furious. And it, it, this is strong language. It doesn't go like, oh, he doesn't like this or, oh man, this is irritating. He is enraged at their behavior. Look at Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, I said I wanted to connect some dots and show you something really interesting. When the, the threat of death was presented to them in chapter 2, young in their faith, young men facing death, learning who God was. What did they do? They fell on their face and they began to plead with the Lord, God, give us revelation that we might not die. But once God had shown up in their lives and they were maturing as believers, death was, there was, there was not a fear of death here. There was not this like, oh God, you've got to do something. We're fixing to go before the king. And what do they say? They say, we have no need to answer you in this matter, verse 17, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. This is so important for you to get a hold of today. When God reveals himself in your life, it should be a stepping stone towards maturity in the faith, not the standard and baseline for which you expect God to show up every time. Okay, God, I'm in another difficult situation. Prove yourself. But too many times as Christians, this is what we do. God shows up in an incredibly miraculous way. And five years later, we're facing another obstacle. And too many Christians go, God, you've got to do something. You've got to show up. Instead of looking it in the eye and saying, I already know my God is capable of doing what he will do. And I'm here with him. And I want to point a couple of things out here. The use of the word God here. Uh, uh, and so uh, the book of Daniel is written in two languages, uh, partially in Hebrew, partially in Aramaic. Uh, the, the word here, though, in chapter 3 is this word, Elehenai, and it means our God. I'm, I'm not pretending to be a Hebrew scholar, but I want to connect a, a really good thought to you for you in just a moment, okay? So you look at this word, okay? And we'll move to verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnaces heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their, in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Watch this. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a good detail to help us understand just how hot it was in case you were thinking that it was like a sauna and they were just going in for a chill time. Those people that were delivering them into the furnace were consumed by the fire just upon entry. 
Verse 23, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Look here at this word gods. We'll go back over here and look at this. It's Elohim. One was talking about our gods. This one is of God, but it's the same form of God, right? So Nebuchadnezzar has not yet accepted Yahweh as God. And just a spoiler alert for you, in case you were wondering and in case you didn't know, he does do that, all right? He's declared his goodness, but he has not given up his own, his own views. He has not separated and been transformed by the renewing of his heart. And so when they come and they're talking about God, Daniel intentionally uses this word because it's such a way that it would make sense to Nebuchadnezzar. And you go, well, why would he do that? Paul does the same thing in the New Testament when he comes and he's sitting here and he's at Mars Hill and he looks and he sees all of the wise people and all the statues to the different gods. And there's one that's to the unknown God. And he comes and he says, ah, I see that you are very smart people. And I want to tell you about this unknown God that you have made a statue to. And the word there for unknown God is a generic form of God. Why? Because it helps people who do not understand that there is only one God and one way and one truth to connect to the story so that they can come to know Yahweh, so that they can come to know Jesus. And that's exactly what Shadrach, Meshach unwittingly do here. Because what does he say? He says he uses their same expression of God and says the fourth is as a son of God. And scholars make the argument that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That this right here is one of those moments where the Word showed up and was standing there with three young men in a fiery furnace, and we get a glimpse at the Son of God, Jesus himself. Now, while this is happening in 587, that king, Zedekiah, he gets taken. So, fiery furnace takes place. A miracle happens. None of the other gods that they serve ever show up like this. And what do we see? We see that even though he has seen this, even though that he has experienced this, this miraculous power of God, he continues to be an oppressive, brutal king, worshiping the other gods. He continues to exert his rule and his vengeance over Judah as he comes back in once again. This time he is so angry that in 586, they destroy the temple. Daniel in exile, son of God shows up in a fire to this king. He sees the hand of God. This is why when Moses and the rich man um, are having the conversation 
after he has died, and he says, oh, you know, go and, and tell my brothers, because he's in hell, and go and tell my brothers uh, about heaven and hell so that they won't come to where I'm at. And Moses is like, yeah, that's not, that's not how this thing's going to work. Actually, it wasn't Moses. It was Abraham. Sorry about that. He says, that's not how this thing is going to work, because even if they had a prophet show up and, and be right there in front of them, they still would not believe. That's what we see throughout history. God will reveal himself, and some will repent and change their lives in the moment, and some will continue in their wickedness. And Nebuchadnezzar continues in his wickedness. And then in 582, because the temple has been destroyed and because the land is falling apart, Jeremiah is actually captured by Hebrew rebels. He's abducted, kidnapped, and taken down into Egypt. So the temple is destroyed. And then in 571, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. This will bring us into chapter 4. And Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And Daniel is brought in to be a part of this conversation. Uh, I don't think I have the slide. Here it is right here. And then in 570, Ezekiel, a completely different prophet who is ministering at the exact same time, he passes away. And he dies in Tel Aviv, which is present-day Tel Aviv. So when you're reading your word and you go back and you're looking at these things, you have Jeremiah happening simultaneously, Ezekiel happening simultaneously, the book of Daniel happening simultaneously, Habakkuk, Obadiah, all of them are overlapping. And they're all ministering to the people and lives are being transformed, but the children of God continue to be stubborn and continue not to obey the will of God. Now, chapter 4 is actually, the majority of it is written by Nebuchadnezzar. It's the only chapter in all of Scripture that we have written by a pagan king. So we jump here into chapter 4 and verse 29. Uh, well, Daniel, Daniel comes in and tells him that uh, the dream that he had of a tree was one that represented the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, all right? But that it will be torn down, and when it does, that uh, he will go mad, and he will take on a, the state of an animal. Specifically, the one that is mentioned is an ox. And he tells him this. He's a little bit nervous to tell him, but Nebuchadnezzar says, don't be afraid, just tell me. Why? Daniel has proven himself over and over. But something is happening. Nebuchadnezzar will not surrender to the will of God, and God is in pursuit of Nebuchadnezzar. And so watch this in verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? So he's had this dream. One year later, he is walking around and he is looking out and he thinks to himself, 
I have done an incredible thing. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and, for, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Doctors call this clinical lycanthropy. Majority of the time, it is when somebody believes that they are a wolf. It is from this actual story that the theories or the, the ideas of werewolves and legends come from because God gave this man over to madness, stripped away everything he had made for himself. And this takes place for seven years. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. So he comes, he, he declares God is Lord, he is restored to the position of being king for one year. And then in 562, he dies. And I think it's worth noting that he dies a believer. And this is the thing that should be encouraging in our lives when we have loved ones who we say, man, they have seen the hand of God. And yet they continue to do things that do not line up with the Word of God. And for some, it might seem that it is as bad as Nebuchadnezzar. And for others, it might just seem that you're just walking outside of the line. But let me tell you, be encouraged, right? that as long as there is breath in their lungs, God can continue to do a work in their lives. And he takes the, this ruthless king who is king over Babylon. And just to give you a perspective of, of what was happening in the heavens, right? Okay, Babylon is a picture of Satan, the enemy's Jerusalem. This is his kingdom, his city, his position of dominion. We see the idea and the spirit of Babylon coming back into play throughout history, and we will in the final days see the spirit of Babylon back on the earth. And who is the king that makes it famous? Nebuchadnezzar. And what does he do? He surrenders to the king of kings. I just got to think that the angels who are watching and playing a role in this great story have got to be thinking to themselves like, this man's given over to the devil. This is hopeless. And then he gets on his face and declares that, that God is the, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am. And his life is turned around and they've got to be having a, a, a shouting party in heaven at what God can do. And then today we can be encouraged at what God can do. 
Now, a new king comes on the scene, and one of the first things that he does in 561, remember uh, Jehoiachin, the king from Judah that had been uh, imprisoned? At the end of Jeremiah, he tells us that Jehoiachin is released from prison. He's not sent back to Judah. Okay, and he, this is the last living king of Judah, Israel. Even to this day, this is the last living one. He is released and he is given back his, his title of king and he is given for the rest of his life the ability to sit in the king's company, to eat with him and live as royalty there for the rest of his days in Babylon. And then in 560, I don't have the one for it, but Jeremiah dies in Egypt, and so he dies in exile himself. And then we come to Daniel chapter 5. So uh, Belshazzar is uh, the king at this point, and Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the language that's used in there is son. Uh, it's a generic form of son. <coughs> that, that the Hebrew writing uses in a manner of lineage. And so it would not have been uncommon for a grandson to use this language of, of father and son, even among grandkids. And so this right here in 539 is what we call the writing on the wall. And if you've ever used that, uh, that phrase before, the writings on the wall, it is because of this story right here in Scripture. Belshazzar, the king, sends for the vessels that in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar had uh, taken from Jerusalem, from the temple, and he had taken them. If you remember, it says that he took and he had them placed in, uh, uh, in the temple to their gods. And now Belshazzar is having this big party, and he sends for those vessels. Why? Because they're going to drink wine out of them. Now, this is the type of stuff in Scripture that, that always troubles my heart. Because Nebuchadnezzar has a radical coming to Jesus story. And we know that Belshazzar knows these stories. He knows that he has the heritage of knowing how God showed up and transformed his granddad. And yet here he is living a life serving other gods. And we come in verse 22, and his mom is speaking here, and she says, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you know all this. No, actually, I'm sorry. Daniel has come in now. Um, his mom tells him to go for Daniel, is what happens. She says, go for Daniel. Daniel lived throughout this time period uh, when your father your granddad, had seen the hand of God move. He knows how to interpret dreams, and they're partying, and this hand shows up and begins to write on the wall. It freaks everybody out. They send for Daniel, and Daniel says, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. So you have known everything that happened under your granddad's reign, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. 
And you have praised the gods of silver, gold, and of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hands is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. And I don't, I don't know why this is so hard for us to get, but this is a humanity issue, is that there is one God that shows up in history and does the miraculous over and over and over, and yet humanity turns to gods that never show up and have no story of doing anything active in this world. And God shows up, and the testimony of the saints continues to today. And yet, even today, our hearts can feel like maybe it's okay that somebody worships another God. It's not a big deal. Or really, is God going to judge us based on our actions, our behavior? Does God really care about these things? And yet, God is consistent. And He says, you, you've known these things, right? You've heard these things, and yet what do you do? You sit here and you make sacrifice, homage, you sing, you talk to things that have no breath while you dishonor God. Verse 24, then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter, mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now remember over here that the next kingdom that would come, the prophecy was that it would be one that was a divided kingdom. It would be two groups that ruled as one. Daniel here says that you're, you have now been given over to the Medes and the Persians. And while this is happening... The Medes and the Persians had diverted the water from the river and had used the aquifers underneath the palace to coat through the water, which was only chest deep, historians say, and they made their way. And by the thousands, by the thousands, while Daniel is sitting here, what seems to be very calmly, letting the king know what is about to happen this is not a, a prophecy of something that will happen in a hundred years, but it will happen in mere minutes. And the Medes and the Persians come in and they sweep through the city, overthrowing Belshazzar and the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar and his father had established. And where do we find Daniel in the midst of this? Chapter 6. He is still alive and kicking. And this is where I'm going to wrap up today. Bear with me. I know I'm going a little bit long. Daniel chapter 6, verse 8. Darius has come and placed governors over the regions of the Babylonian Empire. He loves Daniel. He's heard the stories of Daniel. The people have told, them about, told him about the miracles, right? And so uh, they, they make this... Uh, declaration that uh, 
for 30 days. They are not to worship uh, uh, any other gods. And the very first thing they do this because they want to get Daniel out of there. There's a group of people that can't stand him. They can't stand the favor that's on him. Uh, my, a friend of mine, he tells me all the time, he says, favor isn't fair, right? When you're a child of God and the favor of God is on you, it's never going to be fair. And when the world isn't walking in, in relationship with God, they don't have that favor on them, and they're going to be frustrated to watch favor on your life. But when you're a child of God, you walk with the favor of being a child of God. Your children, right, they walk around with the favor of being your children. If you're a good parent and they're in, you're in good relationship, there is a lot of favor that our children get that other kids in our lives don't get. And that's the way it is for, for us with the Father. He has favor on us. And Daniel walks in favor, and it drives these people crazy. And so they convince Darius to make this edict that if anyone does worship another god, that they will be thrown into the lion's den. I'm sure you're familiar with this story. And they come and they tell him, now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be revoked. They are setting up the perfect scenario to take out a man who is living for God. They can't catch him on anything else, so they have to create the circumstance. And remember that this is the divided kingdom that had been prophesied. This was an entirely new group of leaders. No relationship with Daniel. And yet he had already come into a place of favor with Darius. And so in 539, the famous lion's den scenario is played out. And what is worth noting here Most likely, Daniel is over 70 years old at this point, maybe even in his 80s, when he is brought to the lion's den. He's not the young guy that we get in Sunday school with our little felt boards, and they bring little young Daniel out, and he goes into the lion's den. He is an old man. Verse 18, Daniel refuses to worship. He is placed in the lion's den, and the king is not at all happy about it, but it cannot be revoked. And this is what it says, that the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Darius, the ruler of Babylon, who can have anything that he wants, can do anything that he wants, is worried about a 70 to 80-year-old man and worried to the point that he's not sleeping and he's waiting. What's he waiting on? He's waiting to see if there is favor from God on this man. Then at break, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? 
Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. He spends the night in the lion's den. An angel is there keeping the mouths of the lions closed. And Daniel is making a declaration. And I'm reminded of Peter in Acts chapter 12, verse 6, right? He is imprisoned and sentenced to die. And he's sitting there between two guards. And what does he do? He just goes to sleep. Because part of the maturing process of a believer Once we acknowledge that God is king and ruler in my life is we come to the place and the understanding that God's will be done. And if God's not done with me, then today is not my day. And you can be 80 years old and still have purpose in your life. I I know, I know that the world doesn't communicate that to you. That the world around you wants to belittle uh, somebody who is older. And more and more our culture degrades and, and, and is disrespectful to people who are older. But until God is done with you, you have a task in front of you. And walk in confidence with that. And then in 535, Daniel dies. He's an old man. God has been faithful. Daniel has been faithful. And the things that begin to happen, those who are in exile, they're released. The 70-year period comes to an end. And so many of them who had been scattered make their way back, and in 516, they rebuild the temple. Daniel did not get the opportunity to see this happen. But I believe that God used Daniel to stir a kingdom that was filled with violence, treachery, and hate to view the Hebrew people with favor so that the children of God could return home. And last week, I talked to you guys about the fact that Josiah was this young king who comes into this kingdom, he finds out that they're not living the way that they're supposed to be living, and like, and the scripture says in 2 Kings that there had never been a king before him or after him who so wholeheartedly turned his heart to God. And Daniel, but a child in that kingdom, grew up to be a leader right beside the kings of Babylon. And you have no idea what your role the thing you're called to do, you have no idea what it can do. You have no idea what the next generation, what benefit they'll reap from your faithfulness. And whether he's calling you to be the one like Jeremiah who weeps over the nation, if he's calling you to be like Josiah who turns and is the first in your family to sow with total and complete abandoned passion, pursue God, or whether he's calling you like Daniel 
to stand in the courts of the corrupt and to walk blameless or like Esther to go and confront wickedness, believing that God will faithfully show up. Can I tell you, if we, if we play our role, lives are changed. And it's the reason why we are not all called to stand on the same platform saying the same thing. And so the temple is rebuilt. And I'll close with these thoughts. Daniel makes a commitment and lives it out. Nebuchadnezzar makes a commitment and strays in and out. He sees the fiery furnace. He says, there's no God like you. And what does he do? He doesn't walk it out. Daniel's consistent. Nebuchadnezzar is not. And these are the two types of believers that we see in our lives. Some people come to the saving knowledge of Christ and they are with total abandonment in pursuit of the King of Kings for the rest of their lives. And some come to the saving knowledge of Christ and they walk in and out of their faith. God is still in control and God is still at work, but if we can be honest about that, if we can be if we can just take time and be honest about the fact that there are Christians among us who will have a supernatural experience with God and then walk away, then we can pose the question, which type of Christian am I? Am I the type of believer who is walking it out like Daniel or the type of believer that is living like Nebuchadnezzar? I titled the message, What Do We Have to Do? Well, we have to answer the question, which, which are we? Who are we? What type of Christian will I be? Will I be a Christian that conforms to the world and resists the Word of God, or will I be the type of Christian that conforms to the Word of God and resists the world? Will my life be filled with more regret than it is with hope? And in order to come to this conclusion, for you to answer this, you have to answer the question, to what do you conform? And I'm not going to lie, like there's probably no better time for Americans to really jump into this question and evaluate who you are and where you're at than during an election year. Amen? Because I'm going to tell you what, everybody else is trying to judge you right now. And so what is it that we conform to? And then to what do we resist? And who are we partnered with? Who are those people that we stand with and who are the ones that we stand not so much against because ultimately the goal is that they would come to know Jesus. So who are those that we stand knelt before the Lord praying for? Remember, the battle belongs to the Lord. And so our resistance to the world is not about getting out there and getting into a slugfest and being a keyboard warrior and having the wittiest comeback and the greatest meme, the most likes. That's not what it's about. If we see something that doesn't line up with the Word of God, the first thing we need to do is say, hey, God, do I line up with your Word? And if God reveals that I do, then the next thing I need to do is I need to start praying for those people. And so ask yourself the question this week, who will be there with you if you are victorious in your efforts? 
Think about it. When you decide what your efforts are, when you decide what are the things that you're fighting for in life, if you were to be victorious, who would be standing with you? My prayer is that in my efforts, that I'll be standing with my brothers and sisters, regardless of whether they look like me, talk like me, come from the same place, live on the same street. I want to be with those who the Father calls their own. Let's stand to our feet as we close. I went a little bit long. There's a lot of information to cover all of that in one message. I'm excited next week to jump into the prophecies. It's probably going to be the full amount of time as well. Just be ready for it. On midweek this last week, I covered the entire book of Jeremiah, just a quick overview so that you got some insight into Jeremiah and how it plays into this. Uh, this coming week, I'm going to be doing the same thing, jumping into some more of this overlay uh, of information. I'm not going to lie, I'm intimidated to try to cover Ezekiel in less than a year because uh, there is so much in there. I mean, Ancient Aliens on Netflix even talks about Ezekiel, so uh, there's a lot to unpack. Uh, listen, we have an opportunity every day to live like Daniel, and you might feel like, man, that's intimidating. The cross was intimidating. So find the excitement and the adventure that comes in this journey. And if you're a believer in the room or watching online, then here's what I'm asking you to do. Is I'm asking you to jump in feet first, all in. Do you believe Jesus is returning one day? If Jesus is coming back, what will, what will we be found doing? What will we be found doing? And who will be standing with us? If you do not know Jesus as Lord of your life, the invitation today is really simple. The Word says that you come to this place where you just understand, like, I can't do this on my own. And I believe that there is a God, and so today I need a Savior. And the Word says that if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. Can I, can I tell you, Paul says it like this. Paul says that these people in the Old Testament, that had they knew Jesus by name, they would have been Christians. That's what he says. Why is that? Because they were always looking to the promised Messiah. See, the promise came in the garden. It was a seed, one that would come and that it would crush the head of the enemy. In the beginning was the Word. You see, they had always been looking to Jesus, even though they didn't understand that the cross that they were looking toward was that of Jesus. They were always looking forward. And Paul says that had they been alive and had they understood who Jesus was, they would have been Christians by title. And so we are a part of, an, of, a, of a huge legacy of believers. And so we make that decision that Jesus is Lord of our lives. And the Word says that then we are saved. And then the work begins. Studying the Word of God. Changing the way that we're living. Making new friends and new family. 
And so if you want to make Jesus Lord of your life today, I want to pray with you for that. So if you would, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment, if you're watching online, and even if you're not making this decision, if you could pause for just a moment what you're doing and just, just reverence the Lord, honor Him in this moment as the Holy Spirit is working in people's lives. And if you want to make that decision right now, in this room or online, I want you to pray a prayer like I'm praying. It needs to come from your heart, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray a prayer right now. Lord, I come to you acknowledging my own failures and my need for a Savior. And Jesus, I ask that you would be Lord of my life. Transform me. Make me into your own. Lead me and guide me. And I surrender right here, right now, in your mighty name, amen. If you made that decision, we want to know that. We're not trying to embarrass you. We want to celebrate with you. Please, we have a prayer team that's going to be available in the back in a moment. Look, the scripture says that if you're in need, go to the elders of the church, allow them to lay hands on you. I know we're in COVID season. They're wearing masks, and if you're not comfortable, don't do it. It's fine. We're not trying to force anybody, but we want to operate in the way that the word instructs us to. And so if you would like prayer, we're available to pray with you. If you came to make Jesus Lord of your life today here in the room, come see me, come see them, let us know. We'd love to connect you with a Bible, connect you with additional resources and jump into this conversation. If that's happening for you online, let somebody in the chat know. You can email me, jim at citychurch.life and I'll get back in touch with you. God is good. Jesus is coming back. His word is there so that we will be encouraged and whether we are in the last days or we are not in the last days, we are still the church. Amen? Love you guys. Make it a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. Go change your world.